Hey. Hello. Michael, can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? Okay, I can. Christopher, I think you might be on mute. <laughs> of course I am. Man, there I didn't hear we are. I didn't get Hello, my theme song. All. I didn't get my theme song yet. <laughs> oh, but we have this. We can just do this. <laughs> that's that's our outro. That's our outro. <laughs> that's true. That's our, that's our I'm jumping the gun on us. Uh, yay. Well, good morning. And um, what a happy morning. And we usually have this special session on our first Sunday of the month. But hey, what's life without a little difference and change? Yeah. So here we are with Ask a Theologian. And our theologian happens to be Michael Delashmit. Hey. Was that a slow motion? Ole, ole? What was that? Ole, ole. <laughs> it was a delay, ole. Oh. oh. Um, So for those of you who have not seen this segment and are joining us for the first time, Michael Delashmit is our um, famous in-house theologian who answers all of our burning questions. Um, So if you have any questions that you'd like to ask, feel free to just put those right in the chat and Christopher and I will be sort of monitoring the chat and we will ask them to Michael as they come up. Um, so, uh, we don't have any yet, so we can either chit chat or Christopher. I have a, here we go. It's going to be a good one. I have a question. Um, so it's been such a trying time this year, so much loss. And what would you say to those who are grieving or in the process of grieving or, have grieved for a year. What would you say? Um, what would you say to 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 those who are in their various stages of grieving? Yeah, that's a really good question, um, and it's it's certainly appropriate. Uh, you know, given that we've been in the middle of this just crazy year of uh, one one trauma after the next, and um, you know, there is this, uh, there's this theme that Lutheran theologians use that they, they look at the Bible through um, what they call the theology of the cross. And the theology of the cross, it's, it was a phrase that Martin Luther in the, the 16th century um, kind, of, uh, uh, kind of, I guess we could say popularized or used. He said, uh, a, a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. And that um, it, it's a way of saying that in, in the cross of Christ, God's love for humanity and the totality of, hum, of the wickedness of the world are met together. And that God's not a stranger to our pain, our suffering, um, the hurt in life, um, that God, God is in those moments of pain. Uh, where we least expect to see God, that's where God is. And I think it's a temptation to take the other side, which Luther called a theology of glory, which just tries to minimize pain and suffering or, or to say, well, pain and suffering, you must have done something wrong. It's like the person uh, who came to, G- it's when Jesus uh, healed the man born blind and he was asked who, by, by a bystander who sinned uh, this, that this man is born blind, him, he or his parents. 
and Jesus is like, that's not how that's not how this thing works. Um, you know, he was born blind so that the glory of God would be revealed. It's not that human suffering is the way that God chooses to reveal God's glory or God's power or God's love, but that's a place where we know that God shows God's glory, God's power, and God's love for us. So I guess I would say, if you're in the midst of suffering and and loss, like all, almost all of us are, or this kind of ongoing trauma we can be assured that God is, is with us in that. Uh, God doesn't promise us a, a smooth uh, road uh, or a life without pain and suffering. God promises to be with us in the middle of pain and suffering. Okay, that's a good Thank one. You. That's a good yeah. response. Hyatt um, does have a question for us. It is a very interesting question. In the Old Testament, there's a wild story involving Elisha cursing a group of youth for taunting him. The youth are devoured by bears. Moral of the story, respect your elders. Man, I had to bring up that one, didn't you? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so the the Bible is full of really, really weird stories. Uh, There's just like no two ways about it. And um, when we read these things, we have to ask ourselves, are they, uh, you know, are they here as a a source of like allegory? Are they here to tell us a a lesson or are they just kind of included, um, you know, for for kind of, um, you know, bringing a bit of of like light to the story? Do they have like a narrative purpose? Uh, So we have to always kind of ask ourselves you know, what's, what's going on. And and it's really easy when you read a story like that to think, ah, well, this is a parable about uh, not taunting your elders or not respecting your elders. But, but, you know, I would take that within the scope of like the, what's the, what's the Bible trying to say as a whole is the Bible as a whole telling us to stay in our place and, uh, or bears are going to eat us. Or is the Bible (laughs) as a whole telling us the story of God's, um, God's creating, redeeming and sustaining love for the universe. And I think it's the second piece that it's this story of God's love. And sometimes as that story of God's love is told, there are weird things that show up that do not reflect the love of God. And maybe maybe the people who wrote those, those stories down were, uh, you know, had an original meaning or original purpose behind there uh, that we, we don't know. Or maybe, maybe the story shows us that that's even people that God chooses to work through, like mighty prophet Elisha, have are, are broken and do terrible things like we do. I mean, that's one of the most amazing things to me about the Bible is that the, the characters that are usually like the high points of the story, like Abraham and David and Solomon and, and Elisha are, are broken and, and in ways that they would be like, they would be canceled right now if this was the 21st century. Abraham, as we're studying on the Thursday night Bible study, Abraham like tells his wife, Sarai, to go sleep with the Pharaoh so that Abraham can get like some donkeys and some camels and some oxen. Like he sells his wife to Pharaoh, right? And then he becomes the father of all nations. It's crazy. So, so the point isn't, isn't let's follow these people. Let's be like Abraham or like Elisha and curse some people so some kids get eaten by bears. But rather the point is even broken people can be used for the purposes of God, which is really good because I don't know about you, but I am a broken person. Now I haven't cursed any youth lately and had them eaten by bears, but I've certainly, you know, I, I, you know, I live in New York. I've said some things that I regret on the street, you know, but God is still, uh, I hope, uh, at work in my life. 
Uh, Barbara Jones has asked for a last prayer for my family and yours. Uh, yet Aaron Lee asks this question. If Jesus was baptized as an adult, why do we baptize babies? <laughs> that is a great question. So, uh, you know, the, um, the, the baptism of Jesus is definitely a model for Christian baptism. Uh, and the reason why Christians baptize is because uh, the baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two uh, sacraments that uh, are, are were instituted by Jesus. Those are the things that he told his disciples to do. So at the Last Supper, he told his disciples to repeat this Last Supper. Uh, and then as he's leaving uh, in, in Matthew, at the end of Matthew, he tells his disciples to, to make disciples and to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So baptizing and communion become these two kind of foundational practices that Christians take with them as they kind of go out and follow in the way of Jesus in the early days of, of, of following Jesus. And, um, and one of the, the, the kind of like the, the mark of, of a person who decides to follow Jesus is that they are baptized. We think about, say, um, uh, the, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in uh, the book of Acts, who um, uh, is, is in the middle of the desert, and um, uh, a disciple whose name I cannot remember for the life of me appears to him, and, uh, and he, he asks to be baptized and is baptized right there and begins following Jesus. We also hear in these early stories of people deciding to follow Jesus through baptism, that it wasn't just the individual, but it was also their household that was baptized. Mm -hmm. And the household included all people. Uh, it included their, um, their indentured servants. It included children. It included everyone involved in, in a household. So very quickly for Christians, um, you know, baptism, uh, you know, was an initiation into the faith for, for new believers, but it was also a way that people who are part of the faith included in, into this, this new way of following Jesus, their whole family. And so, um, you know, Christians, uh, many different traditions uh, do infant baptism and also only adult baptism or believers baptism. But um, the reason why we baptize children is because it's a it's a mark that this entire family is going to be engaged in in following in the way of Jesus. So um, and some people say, well, you know, how, how can a child choose to be baptized? I mean, isn't isn't baptism something that I have to make a, like a personal choice on? And uh, and that's you know certainly a good argument. But I would say, can we ever really fully understand what what God's up to and God's grace? Can we can an adult ever fully understand what salvation means or what baptism means? Uh, both baptism and the Eucharist are these like really kind of dense points where, where God's grace is known to us in physical things like water and wine and bread. And uh, there's a mystery deep inside of that, that no one can fully uh, understand whether they're a child or uh, an adult. I have a follow-up question. Um, and the disciple, as Amy has shared with us, was Philip. Is that oh, right? Wow, man. <sighs> Man, yeah, I, got, I got sidelined with the Elisha question and the bears. So that's all I can <laughs> say. For Elisha and the bears. Well, you've been you've been saved. You can go in peace. Thank you, Amy. Now. Um, is um, there in the Episcopal faith? Is there a process or uh, how do I say um, if you're baptized as a baby or a child? 
uh, being baptized as an adult? Like, is that a part of the Episcopal faith? Like, is it required or is it encouraged? Or That's a great question. So uh, Episcopalians, you know, we confess this creed that we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. That's part of the Nicene Creed. Uh, and so we believe that once a person is baptized, they're baptized and there's no there's no need to baptize them again. You don't lose your baptism. Uh, the promise that God makes to you in baptism is indissoluble. It can't be washed away. It's like it's like it's something you you have been you have been adopted into God's family, and God's never ever ever going to let you go. And that that is really hard to get our minds around because we think, well, what if what if a baptized person decides to renounce their vows and to not no longer be a Christian and no longer fall in the way of Jesus? Guess what? God doesn't renounce God's vows. That's the it's the it's a covenant that God is making with you in saying, "I've got you. I, you are my, part of my family forever, and there's nothing that can be done of it." And and that's that's the power of God's word that that appears to us in in baptism. Wow! But. Uh, you know, there are a couple of instances where you might need to be um, what's called provisionally baptized, and then we'll talk about confirmation. So, uh, I, uh, when I was going through the ordination process um, years and years ago, uh, first in the Church of England, um, I couldn't find my baptism certificate, so uh, which I needed as like paperwork to lodge with the diocese before I could be um, go, go through the process. And so uh, I had to be provisionally baptized, uh, which wasn't re-baptized, but it was the bishop was like, hey, in case you haven't been baptized, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in order to so that I could have a piece of paper. Now, that's a really bad reason for, for re-baptism. And instead of, uh, and it wasn't re-baptism, it was provisional baptism because I couldn't prove that I had been baptized. But we, we reaffirm our baptisms all the time. Whenever we see someone baptized, it's an opportunity for us to reaffirm our own baptisms. Whenever we say the Apostles' Creed in morning or evening prayer instead of the Nicene Creed, that, that reminds us of our baptism because the Apostles' Creed, as opposed to the Nicene Creed, is the creed that Christians have almost always said at baptisms. It's a particular form of the creed that kind of reminds us of these promises that were made for us. And then finally... Um, we uh, we can reaffirm our baptism in in a in a in a more like formal liturgical way through the rite of confirmation and and confirmation has become this 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 um, sort of sacrament like. Uh, um, uh, liturgy that uh, that Christians uh, go go through after they've uh, been baptized, oftentimes as an adolescent or in their twenties or thirties or, or whenever, uh, and it's a way of saying, you know, this this baptismal promise that was made for me. Uh, likely, this is something that I want to publicly affirm for myself, and I, I want the church to confirm as well that I, I am choosing to be a follower of Jesus. So uh, rather than rebaptizing, uh, we would pursue confirmation, uh, which is a great, and, and it's, it's uh, also in our tradition, uh, something that uh, involves a bishop. Uh, the bishop visits the church and a person is confirmed. And the reason why the bishop confirms you as opposed to your local priest or your pastor is because, again, it's a symbol of, of the whole church. The bishop is like the symbol of the whole church welcoming you into this community. Mm. Denise was um, also in the chat talking about the confirmation piece. Cool. So. Yeah, so you got back up there. You got confirmation on confirmation. Oh, double confirmation. <laughs> Bam. Um, 
And uh, Alicia, Alicia was just saying Jesus's take on baptism is, is I got you. So, yeah. yeah. Hashtag make it plain. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Mitch did have uh, a question for you, which is what, if anything, has changed in your thinking or understanding of God or Christianity or the Bible in this past year? Wow. In this past year. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's uh, the thing that I probably have been thinking the most about is, um, is how, uh, how technology connects us to, to one another um, in, in ways that are really authentic. And, and what I mean by this is that, um, you know, Episcopalians, uh, have um, this really high view of, of or in a very particular interpretation of incarnation. You know, incarnation is this, this belief that in Jesus Christ, God has become flesh and that uh, God really cares about the material world and, 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 and physical things. And, and so it's important for us to be in, in places where we can gather together in person and we can consume bread and wine and feel water on, on our bodies and in our bodies. And, and that there's this very kind of like embodied sense of, of what it means to worship and be involved in community. And you think about like how incense appeals to the senses and you know tapestries, investments kind of appeal to the eye and it's it's all a, a very like embodied kind of physical kind of faith it's not you know we very few episcopal churches are like whitewashed without kind of stained glass and and sort of and very very simplified almost all of them have some sort of um kind of connection to a, a very embodied faith even if it's just the embodiment of worship in the book of common prayer and then the pandemic hits and we can't meet and we can't touch, and we can't sing, and we can't eat bread, and we can't drink wine, and we can't feel water. What does that? What does that mean? Are we are we disconnected? But I think what what we find is that um, technology, which we viewed at, at, at one point as being like this, kind of creating this virtual space that you know we're we're not we're like disembodied. You know, you think of like the lawnmower man in um, like nineteen uh, eighties, nineteen nineties, uh, kind of like cyber, cyberpunk. Uh, style films, you know, Max Hedren and these kind of like disembodied virtual reality spaces. That's actually not at all what's going on, that this technology has, has created another way for us to be embodied and related to each other. That we're not disconnected. We're we're actually deeply connected. And and what does this technology teach us about what what it means to be part of this mystical body of Christ? And and how does this experience of me being in my office in Chelsea and you all being in the various places that you are, how does this like relate to what it means for us to be connected to one another across time and space and for me to be connected with Jesus. And I think it is just really, I think for me, deepened what it means to be in, uh, incarnate and embodied and connected to God and to others. And, uh, and that's probably the thing that the pandemic has, has taught me the most. Wow. So you don't have any like technology zoom fatigue Oh, I'm so tired of it. And I also, I'm also <laughs> an introvert. And so I get like people fatigue. So for me, this is like, this is just another form of people, of people fatigue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, we don't have any other questions, but I did want to just make an observation. Um, and Christopher, it's a question for you, kind of. Um, it's not a theological question. Don't worry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um 
Were you, do you were you asking that question about grief um, because of Rachel's sermon? Um, no, but you know, like a lot of things, uh, nothing is in isolation, I guess, Mm -hmm. you know? Oh, I was just, because I think one of the things that she was talking about, um, which I had never, it had never occurred to me was when she was talking about, you know, Jesus in the resurrection still carried his scars with him. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was something that was sort of, it was just kind of mind blowing for me to think about that because I think, when I think about resurrection, I think about, you know, coming out on the other side, all of this is healed. It's done. Like, you know, all of those things that you've gone through, all of the grief, all of that stuff, like you come out shiny and new, mm-hmm. you know, that's, I think what that's always what I've thought. And so Michael, this would be more of the question for you is theologically, like, where did I get that idea? Cause you know, if we're talking it, you know, with what Rachel was saying today in the sermon, which I think is really powerful and speaks to me on a much deeper level than like, look, once you're resurrected in whatever, you know, form that is in whatever thing you need to let die and get reborn. Like, it's not just this clean slate kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us uh, who grew up in in North American evangelical Christianity, um, inherited this view that, that like, you know, that, that everything's made clean and made perfect. And that as a way of like covering over, like Mm -hmm. almost like the greatest emotional invalidation of the universe, like all the things that you, (laughs) that that you brought to you right now are somehow gone. And the only thing that God cares about is this new thing, because the old thing was so rotten and terrible anyway. Mm -hmm. But that's not, that's not at all the story of the gospel or the story of the Bible. Again, it goes back to these like, jerks in the old testament like elisha and abraham and david who that 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 part is still told i mean think about that their stories their bad biographies were never whitewashed you know we get the whole picture there god sees the whole you and still chooses to love you and 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 take that and 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 walk with you uh as as a as a a healed uh, and and whole person who still carries those scars and that baggage and that that kind of past history. So God's not asking us to dump our past history or you know forget who we were, but rather see how God has been with us even at points when we didn't think that God was with us uh, mm-hmm. and and is con- going to continue to be with us. That you know hashtag Jesus got you uh, in in baptism. But I, I think yeah, I mean it's a uh, it's a temptation to just focus on like the, the goal and not recognize that life is this really huge process that we're still like very much in. And one of the problems with that, that view of like, you know, our resurrected selves or, our, you know, our new life selves are going to be completely, um, you know, completely like, like whole it, it like, it really challenges our, our theology of, of like, of disability. Like what, what is it, you know, if, if, you know, I, I, I don't see, I don't see 3d. Because I, I, my eyes don't work right, and my brain's miswired, oh. and um, so I can't catch, and uh, my eyes go like weird when I'm thinking, and uh, and that's like who I am, and I can't, I, and if I were to see 3D, I don't even know if I'd know how to navigate the world anymore, and so you know if if God's like if if the if God doesn't take my broken eyes and like bring me to heaven in my brokenness, and and I I don't know if I'd even know who I am anymore. And, um, you know, similarly, a lot of people in the, the, the blind or the deaf community uh, struggle a lot with uh, our kind of insistence on seeing or hearing being absolutely normative. And they'd say, you know what, I don't really want to, 
I don't really want to hear uh, that. That isn't, I wouldn't know what that means. And so um, I think God's grace is big enough to encompass what, 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 you know, where we're at and what we need. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Totally yeah. That's beautiful. really well said. Cause I think for me, there's also like a seduction in the idea that like the hard things that you've gone through or the things that have scarred you will go away. Yeah. And, you know, but that's, that is a part of exactly what you were saying. It's a part of your story. It's yeah. a part of what made you who you are yeah. and made you beautiful. So yeah, yeah I appreciate yeah. that. I think this is now just going to become a tradition that every time we do ask a theologian, you say something that makes me cry. (laughs) (laughs) That means it's working. (laughs) I mean, ask a theologian is, has become something I look forward to, um, I guess, both for the edification, but also just the, uh, the, the, the sheer art of seeing someone like apply their wisdom and knowledge in such a, a, a very um, concise and, and very meaningful way as you do. So it's, it's a really beautiful thing to, to, to see and participate in. Um, Amy uh, responded to a part of your speech, the covering over as if it's saying all that you went through no longer counts. And Jin Lee is is impressed with uh, the greatest emotional invalidation of that part of what you said. That thank you for putting a sensation into words for me. And and Leisha thinks you're beautiful, Martha, which I totally wholeheartedly agree with that. And your big open heart, um, Melissa. Some are challenged by the resurrection and see it more as being symbolic. Yeah. Why is it? an important part of our faith and belief in yeah. three minutes. <laughs> we did that in three minutes. So, that question's a breeze. Let me take that one. No. <laughs> so I, I hear you. And, um, you know, for the last several hundred years, as sort of the Western Europe has, or what, what the kind of European Eurocentric cultures have really struggled with kind of imagining an interventionist God, uh, the notion of the resurrection has been really, really hard, and it became, you know, mythologized. And so, so theologians from, you know, from the the seventeenth century on have have uh, have wrestled with could this really happen? Since it seems so different from anything we know about history, you know, we don't really see people raised from the dead. And if our if empirical observation is the foundation of what we know to be true about the world, then it really puts in question things like miracles or uh, the resurrection. I think I believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, I I really do. And I I believe it in part because um, really, really smart people who I trust believe it. And then I also believe it because I think about um, how could the Jesus story have caught on in the way that it did had there not been some kind of continuation of Jesus's life after the resurrection and the way that mm-hmm. these accounts are written, the way that people's lives were changed and the way that Jesus continues to appear to people throughout the story of scripture and how Jesus continues to appear to us in different, but yet still transforming and powerful ways. And I also think that if we're going to believe in a God who creates the world and can send God's son into the world and can redeem the world and a God worth putting our hope in for the future of our own lives and the future of the world around us, that that God can certainly raise 
their son from the dead. And it's not, even though it may not be something that I can see with my eyes, or I'm not like Thomas and can touch his wounds, um, I can believe that this, this God who I pray to and I pray uh, answer, answers and responds to, to prayer uh, and engages with me is the same God who can also raise um, Jesus from the dead. So um, it is definitely a leap of faith, but I don't think it's a leap into nonsense. That was very good. Well said. As usual. And you made it in time. Yeah, I knew. I had my eye on the clock. I was like, oh, I got to do this. Oh, wow. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry if it was a, a, a timed, a timed oh, answer, good, but good. you were so brilliant. Um, here we are, uh, another fabulous Ask a Theologian session um, and another inspiring leap into the week ahead. So, Michael DeLashmet, yeah. thank you, thank you, thank, thank you, you great. for being with us. Yeah. Yes, um, we always love talking to you. Yeah, I love it too. <laughs> look forward to it. Um, Martha, big hug to you. Michael, mm. big hug to you. Hugs. Yes. And big hug to everyone. Big hugs out there. In Viewland. Ole, 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 ole. Bye. <laughs> Have a good week. <laughs>